It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 35 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, October the 12th. First, I talked to Dr. Afric Boylan, the CEO of Quokta, the quick online doctor. You may have heard of Quokta when they started issuing $20 sick notes online, and they've had national media coverage as a result of their controversial service. Two years on, they've now issued 10,000 plus medical certificates and diversified into offering scripts and medication online. Is this the future of medical services? And then I talked to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the government's attempt to put in a GST floor and its strategy in the lead-up to the election. But first, let's talk to Dr. Boylan. Dr. Afric Boylan, you set up this online doctor service known as Quokta three years ago. Uh, how does it work? Um, I, well, I suppose going back to the beginning, it was envisaged as a sort of a simple solution for people who wanted to get a medical certificate for, you know, a simple ailment. So at that point, it was, um, I suppose, um, more straightforward or more, more, more simple system, but the patient gave us some information and then we'd Skype them afterwards and go through all the uh, the health questions we needed to. And then if it was, if it was genuinely a simple, straightforward issue that didn't require 
a uh, physical examination um we would issue a medical certificate at that point it was it was done a lot more manually because we were kind of we hadn't got our um our IT set up to to kind of uh, make it uh, more automated at our end but um since then i suppose we've we've gone on to just improve the website and make the system a little bit uh, more streamlined so that the patient now enters a lot more information um when they uh, are registering and uh, give us their health background and, and and so on so that means that when we're having the the uh, video consultation it's it's um a lot of the information has already been received um so the doctor is able to focus in quite quickly on what the issues are and then once everything is deemed uh, safe they they get a medical certificate um as a pdf so we uh, it's uploaded into their file and they can download it at their leisure um um but obviously if they require a physical examination or uh, if if the ailment is not suitable for um, an online assessment and that would you know obviously there's a wide variety of things that are not um then we just tell them to go to see their own GP and we would refund them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of simple ailments that even if you came to a doctor's surgery, you don't need a physical examination like things like gastro or migraine or period pain where the, the, the history tells the doctor what's wrong. So um, so it's all about just making sure the assessment is done. Sorry? Yes, okay. So, I mean, how many qualified GPs and how many pharmacists do you have on your team? Right, well, um, there's, there's eight doctors involved. Um, we're all practicing clinicians by day as well. So um, we, we, we would kind of uh, all, all consult throughout the week. Um, it's a seven-day week service. So uh, we, we covered the consultations, um, although we're now bringing on board some um external doctors we're beginning to employ which is which is great um we don't actually have any in-house pharmacists we're not a pharmacy per se we we do as you've probably seen on the website we do um assessments and prescriptions online but those prescriptions go to um pharmacies elsewhere so we have pharmacy partners who will do delivery for us or for the patients if they so wish or or the patient can choose to have the, the to to take the prescription to the pharmacy of their choice. So uh, we don't have any uh, employed pharmacists per se. Now, uh, how many registered users do you have? Um, so at the moment we are um, almost at the sixteen thousand mark, um, and we're getting about a thousand new web visits per day and new new users coming to visit the site and have a look around. But yeah, we're at the, nearly at the sixteen thousand uh, registered users figure um and we've issued ten, over 10,000 medical certificates at this point as well um so yeah things things are definitely kind of increasing and growing all the time on that front now uh, i mean you you give out sick notes uh, did you also offer prescriptions and uh specialist referral letters as well we do indeed. So, um, yeah, like I said at the start, it was, it was envisaged as a sort of a simple fix for a simple problem. We were seeing as GPs on the ground every day, patients coming in for very uh, trivial illnesses when they d- didn't really need to. St- so, yes, we kind of quickly realised there was a, a whole host of other uh, medical ailments that people were coming for, simple prescriptions that didn't actually require a physical visit to the doctor. So, yeah, we've so over the last year, we've developed... Um, the uh, I suppose the IT to allow patients to go online and to be assessed uh, um, via a series of questions, um, which would be sort of screening questions, I suppose, for again ailments that are not um, acutely uh, acute or severe or serious, but nonetheless do require a certain amount of of assessment. So, um, so things that would cover things like uh, contraception, sexual health, um, a few kind of men's health issues like erectile dysfunction. Prem- mature ejaculation and then a few other sundry items things like asthma uh, hay fever Um, so we go through the standardized kind of questions that that the patients um, have to complete and if they are 
kind of if, if everything sort of um, is okay and they don't get red flagged at any point in that assessment, they can they can get their prescription delivered to their home or um, they, either the medication delivered itself or, as I said earlier, a prescription. So um, so yeah, we see that service probably increasing. There are probably at the moment that we try to we try to make it as as, as little face time as required. Some of the Prescriptions do require a, consulta- a video consultation if, if the person has a few issues that maybe just need a little bit more fleshing out. Um, and some, if it, sometimes a conversation with the doctor will allow that to proceed or indeed it might be the opposite where the doctor goes, no, actually, that really isn't suitable for you. Go back to your GP and we'll tell them why. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's good evidence emerging in a few different fronts in terms of um, you know, self-screening as being a reliable way for people to access certain medications like the contraceptive pill, for instance. It's shown that there's a good good bit of evidence showing that women do self-screen as well, if not better than, than doctors do. They're more, they can be as, as thorough, if not more thorough, um, if they're given the right questions to, to do that. Now, uh, you, you, your GP referral system uses a computer algorithm, doesn't it? Mm. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, it's, it's it's limited in the sense that obviously, again, certain ailments do require full physical and, and you know, that wouldn't be suitable. But there are some some ailments that are straightforward um, that are, are really just, um, I suppose, there's a few cursory questions required. And, and so, yeah, so each one of those, the, again, the patient is guided through those questions. And um, if they are, you know, there's no red flags and um, they can, they can get the referral. So a new referral to a specialist for a limited array of, of, of ailments, like, say, for instance, getting sleep studies if they suspect they might have sleep apnea. Um, or it might be a woman who wishes to have a marina coil inserted by a gynecologist. Um, so simple ailments in otherwise generally well people. Um, and just, I suppose it just improves a bit of access. Um, the same for repeat referrals. We can, we can um, arrange those as well. Um, and and uh, how much per consult? So, how much does a patient pay? So, for for pretty much all the services, so for the med, medical certificates, the you, referral letters, and for the prescriptions, it's it's, it's a nineteen ninety nine fee. Uh, well, it's a very low cost service from the patient's perspective. It is a very low cost service indeed. That's sort of the whole point of it is making it easy, accessible, and streamlined. I mean, the, the cost can be kept down by keeping it streamlined and by automating the things that don't need to be, um, you know, lengthy and and bulky. You know, the. There's always a risk, though, with doctors of um, misdiagnosis, and I guess doctors have to deal with that risk every day. Yeah. Uh, Practicing online medicine would be very different. How do you deal with those sorts of challenges? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that we've, we give a lot of thought to, obviously. I mean, we're all practicing clinicians by day, so safety is sort of at the core of every every visit we have with our patients, and um, obviously we have to keep that in front and centre. There's a few, there's a few um, I suppose, aspects to that. The first is that we've selected conditions that um, are amenable to simple online consult- consulting, so they're, they're, they're generally well patients with um, issues that are not necessarily associated with illness, per se, for instance, like contraception. Um and I suppose then what we do is we make sure that the uh, questionnaire process is very, very thorough so that there are, the online consultation or assessment um, asks every question every time. And we, we would contend, and I think, it's, I think it is it's a, it's just a, it's a reality, in busy clinic situations, a lot of patients don't get, get asked every safety question every time they come for a repeat prescription. In fact, sometimes they get asked very little at all. Um, and we found that through the 
the process that we're using, things come up, you know, for instance, you know, there's women who've been on repeat prescriptions for the contraceptive pill, but they have migraine with aura. That's a common one. And no one ever asks them, do they have migraine with aura? And it's a stroke risk. They shouldn't be on the pill. So so we, I suppose it's designing third questions. But um, it's also knowing, I think the third the third element really is knowing when to step in with the video consult- consultations. Um, so, you know, there's key points in each algorithm where if a person answers a certain way, they're advised, well, you actually do need to talk to a doctor about this. And it's it's um, kind of prompting them in that direction. Um, and then the other thing, I suppose, is that I think it's we're, I th- we, we've, we believe our system gives a lot of information to the patient all the way through. So it's informing them. Um, and if they if they choose you know, if they're, they're choosing with, with inform, informed consent, if you like, to, to perceive a certain way. So um, we're hopefully actually educating and arming them with information that they might not otherwise have um, and giving them the access um, that, that, that makes life a bit easier. Um, so it's, it's always a balance. Um, the other point as well is in a lot of medicine is that argument between safety, you know, the, the gateway, the gateway key, gatekeeping role of a doctor versus making sure accessibility is what it should be. And I think in a lot of cases, for instance, like STIs and, and contraception, accessibility isn't always great. You know, you have to take time out of your day, you know, hours potentially for something quite simple, but that is actually very important for your health. And um, so improving accessibility to safe treatments um, in this way, overall, you'd have to say, well, you know, the, the population benefits of ensuring women get contraception or that chlamydia gets treated, you know, where, where's the balance of risk benefit? And I, I would argue, and I think a lot of, a lot of the uh, expert bodies argue that accessibility is actually mo- the most important for certain ailments. So you would say that startups such as yours make online uh, through online medicine actually make healthcare more widely accept- accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also taking away the paternalistic role of the doctor. I mean, there are always going to be situations where a physical examination is important. And although over time, I'm sure technology will improve and remote assessment will become more and more um, standard with remote diagnostics. But in the meantime, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's giving patients um, autonomy. Um, that does sort of um, go against the grain in terms of the, the traditions of, of medicine over the years. Um, so there's definitely going to be, um, you know, a change that it, 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 it'll challenge kind of cultures that are very well established. But, you know, it, it is important to realize that if you educate a patient and give them all the pros and cons, everyone's different. Everyone has different levels of risk aversion and um, different levels of wanting to manage things themselves. And if you equip people with the knowledge and the accessibility, um, you know, I think it's about giving people that kind of control as well, you know, within, within, within reason. I mean, we, we, the information has to be there. They have to be informed, but I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, definitely an empowering um, people to, 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 to kind of access healthcare in ways that suit them um, in a different way. Well, Africa, that is fantastic. And, Thank you very much for your time. It's very, very informative. Thank you. Thank you, Leon. Nice talking to you. Thank you. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, the government has put forward a proposal on a GST floor to um, help Western Australia, and it's been rejected by states, the other states. What's your view of it? I think the, the, the first thing to understand about the GST is that it is a zero-sum game. There's a pot of money the, the, that comes in from consumption expenditure in Australia. The federal government re- 
uh, take off the costs of running the system, which actually isn't very much for them anyway, and then they distribute all the other money to the states on the basis of a formula that was agreed in 1998 when the GST was first proposed as an idea. And I I know that there are, are problems with what's happening in Western Australia, but I don't think the government have made a strong enough argument and case to the general public to justify changing the deal that was struck in 1998. So I, I'm not surprised though, that everybody else has rejected it. Well, the issue, for particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, is property prices come down. Yes, um, the, the, the economy goes through swings and roundabouts. We have a business cycle. Prices go up and down. Uh, we, we know full well that property prices weren't going to rise forever. So it's, it's, it's unsurprising that, you know, uh, the state governments in, in uh, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, their major source of revenue is, 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 is coming off a bit. Um, but nonetheless, governments like everybody else have got to live off the economy. And when the economy goes up and down, everybody's revenue goes up and down with it. So they're, 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 that's hardly a surprising argument to, to, to say that we, we, sh- you know, we should or we shouldn't change the GST deal. So you don't think the GST deal should be shown? Well, I think an argument needs to be made from politicians to change the deal. Because uh, a lot of people make the argument that John Howard made a deal with Meg Lees of the Democrats to, to, to bring in the GST. But in actual fact, John Howard made a deal with the electorate. We had an election around the GST, um, and the people who decide in the end, we, 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 we govern with the consent of the governed, and we tax with the consent of the taxed. And so I think that the, the, the government needs to make an argument to the electorate about changing the GST. It was actually cemented in a, an election. So I, I don't think that the politicians can simply lock themselves up at COAG and hammer out a deal that, that, that benefits themselves and not everybody else. Um, the, the argument for changing the GST seems to revolve around the fact that Western Australia is getting about 30 cents in the dollar. Now, the GST is a top-up deal. It isn't your major source of financing. So the way the GST is meant to work is that um, all states and territories should offer a similar level of, of, of service to their people, to their citizens, and they should pay for that out of their own revenue, and then the GST is meant to top them up. Western Australia doesn't need that much top-up because it's got all the mining royalties. So they're able to raise enough of their own revenue that they don't need to get topped up. So the argument about fairness, it's it's unfair to Western Australia, they're getting less from the GST, is because they don't need the money. Uh, Places that do need the money, South Australia, the Northern Territory and Tasmania, have less ability to actually raise their own revenue. So they get topped up more. Western Australia gets topped up less um, and and quite a lot less nowadays. And uh, um, Victoria and New South Wales have always been net payers into the system. So um, the system is working exactly as it was designed, exactly as it was promised, exactly as it's intended to work. So the argument to change it seems to me to be very thin. Which means uh, they won't have the federal government won't have much to take to Western Australia. Yes, yes, yes. It could be electorally damaging for them. It could be very electorally damaging for them, but that's a political problem. Um, the economics of the GST are pretty sound, remain sound, have always been sound. Um, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of taxation, but in the grand scheme of things, the GST was a pretty good deal. It remains a pretty good deal. It's one of John Howard's finest achievements. Um, so, again, 
you know, yes, there will be political parties that run into political problems from time to time. But again, it boils down to the federal government, or in this case, the, the, the Liberal Party, have been unable to articulate a story as to why they are doing what they are doing. So what you're saying is what they need to do then is that if they want to change the GST, they need to take it to the electorate, as John Howard did yes. in 1998. Yes, 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 yes. It's, and and the, the, the same when the, the federal government brought in the, uh, um, the Google tax at uh, the beginning of this financial year from the 1st of July. Um, they were selling that as an integrity measure around the GST, and, I th- and, and as I actually testified to the parliament, I said, that's all very nice, but take it to the electorate. Um, there isn't a deal with the electorate around the GST. This isn't something that's come from above. And um, uh, so being perfectly consistent, take it to the electorate again. Um, When you live in a democracy, you've actually got to convince the electorate around what you are doing. You can't just make things up on the trot. Now, the budget figures are looking better because of uh, increased revenues coming in. Yes. The numbers are looking good. What does that mean for the government in terms of its budget strategy moving into the election? Well, unfortunately, I think that means a spending spree. Um, so we're in the situation whereby uh, previously the government had promised that there would be um, cuts for every new spending or offsetting cuts every time they introduce new spending and bringing the budget back into, into surplus was the prime objective. Um, now that things are looking slightly better than what they anticipated, um, that promise has been si- uh, quietly sidelined. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see more spending. So by my best guess, we're about six months away from the election. Um, at, you know, probably in the, in the next six months. And so the Labour Party has basically accumulated a potential war chest of, of spending because they're going to change things like uh, negative gearing and whatnot. Um, so that means that they have already got effectively money to spend and they're going to be spending that money. The government doesn't have that money to spend. They've only got the promise of a budget surplus. So I think we're going to see a spending spree come out, which unfortunately is is fiscally irresponsible, because even if the budget is moving back into surplus faster than anticipated, that really means that we should be buying down the public debt faster than what we should have been. So we are still in debt. Debt is still rising. And that, of course, is still a problem. But if there's going to be a spending spree, what does that mean about the surplus, heading into the surplus, 2020, Well, I, I think we were at twenty one twenty two originally, and it's going to be 2021 now or maybe 1920. Um, so more or less, the, the, the Liberals can put their hands on their heart and actually say, well, we will deliver the surplus when we promised, but we will actually just spend the difference in the meantime. So they could legitimately still say 2021, as has been promised for the last few years, and uh, we will spend a bit more money now, which, of course, is simply ramping up debt. Um, so I'd, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all confident that we will see f- fiscal discipline. Um, as I said, the, the, the Labor Party have got this war chest. Um, and of course, and, and bearing in mind, even though they've got this promised war chest, it hasn't been legislated yet. It's still got to get through the Senate. So um, there, there's still an election to, 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 to be had. And of course, uh, the plans of mice and men um, and politicians when elections are due, of course, are all over the place. So it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to watch. What that means, though, is that we're unlikely then to hit a surplus in either 1920, 2021 or 21-22 if it's going to be spending. I would be very surprised, yes. Yes, yes. I, I don't see that there's going to be responsible spending. I see there's going to be big spending. And 
the, the problem is it's, it's not, it's not going to be good spending. Um, it's always consumption spending. Go- government's going to want to spend things on, on, on consumption items. Um, so if, if you remember uh, the, the GFC 10 years ago, it was go household, go early, go hard. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing go household. Um, give people money to spend in their pockets um, is, is the way it's going to be. So what kind of items specifically? Well, I, I would expect things such as school kids bonuses and one, one-offs like that. Um, uh, buy your kid a computer, all these sorts of things, which um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of computers in high school education as it is. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's going to be that sort of stuff. Right. So totally at the consumption end, but nothing yes. at any other end? No, 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 no. I mean, if, if, if you really want to be stimulating the economy, you need to be looking at things such as uh, uh, ca- uh, company tax cuts, which, of course, are, are deeply politically unpopular at the moment, uh, making sure that we don't have a credit s- uh, squeeze. Um, the, the Royal Commission into Banking combined with higher interest rates around the world are going to make it tough for people to get loans. Um, so you need to be thinking about those sorts of things and not actually on the quick fix sugar hit to the economy. Do you expect the, they will make any move on the Royal Commission? Um, it's, it's hard to say. The interim report has come out and I think has been very critical of things such as greed, which I'm not quite sure what that means because greed is actually what runs a capitalist economy. Um, he's also been quite critical of the regulators, uh, which I, I think maybe the government didn't quite expect. Certainly, I don't think the regulators ex- expected that. And if, if, if you follow the, the, the banking system fairly closely, there's nothing that's come out that people didn't really know or expect anyway. So it is a case you can point a, p- a finger at the regulators and say, what have you guys been doing? But of course, the, the regulators are nominally independent of the government. So it means very hard for the government to actually say to the regulators, don't stuff up in future um, by, by by clamping down too much on the financial system. So it, how that path is actually trod, I, I think, is, is going to be an interesting thing to watch as well. Well, Sinclair Davidson, it's always delightful to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. So what's happening in the news? Well, a week ago, the Dow was cruising above 27,000 for the first time, and now it's in a tailspin. There's a whole reason for the sudden sell-off. First, You have to look at the bond market. Simply put, stocks are sinking because Treasury rates are spiking. The Dow plunged 832 points or 3.2% on Wednesday and tech stocks are also taking a hammering and that sent the Nasdaq tumbling 4%, its worst day since the Brexit referendum of June 2016. Now one reason is that the Federal Reserve is no longer propping up the US economy with near zero interest rates. It's been raising interest rates And it's done that eight times since late 2015, and it's signalled that it's going to do more. As interest rates rise, investors have been getting out of bonds, driving down their price, driving up their yields. Investors are also worried that their investments will be less profitable over time if inflation picks up. Rates are going up because the US government is selling more treasuries to pay for the soaring federal deficit. Washington is borrowing heavily to pay for the corporate tax cuts and a surge of government spending. China is signalling that it's worried about its economy and markets around the world are responding. Beset by slowing growth, a persistent problem with debt and potential harm from President Trump's trade war, the Chinese government has taken steps in the past few months to shore up a decelerating economy. It has pared back a high-profile campaign to tackle debt. It has restarted its traditional engines of growth through big government-led infrastructure projects. It's even censored bad economic news. On Sunday, 
Beijing went one step further. The People's Bank of China, the country's central bank, pulled a financial lever that will effectively pump $174 billion into the Chinese economy. The move is aimed at giving a helping hand to China's small and medium-sized business in particular, which have had a hard time getting loans and face other rising business pressures. The growing trade war with the United States has been the most visible threat. In September, the United States imposed tariffs on $200 billion in goods from China. President Trump has shown little inclination to back off, and relations between the two countries have cooled, suggesting the intensifying trade war could get worse before it gets better. So far, the trade war has had only a minor impact on China's vast $12 trillion economy. Trade isn't as important to China as it used to be, thanks in part to the rise of a Chinese middle class that has been a ready buyer of Chinese goods at home. Still, tariffs could hurt the economy the longer they last. In September, new export orders, one indicator of China's manufacturing, fell to the lowest level since 2016. But China has bigger problems in the trade war. Consumers are spending less. Retail sales this year have grown at the slowest rate in a decade. Wage growth is plodding. Infrastructure investment, a pillar of the Chinese economy, slowed significant in the first half of the year. The pace at which companies defaulted on their bonds has quickened. China also has to contend with a stock market that has fallen by around 15% this year and a currency that has lost 10% of its value against the dollar. Some Chinese entrepreneurs also say the business environment is souring. The government could soon require companies to pay more in taxes and benefits. And the International Monetary Fund has cut its US growth forecast for next year, warning that President Trump's protectionist trade policies will harm growth domestically around the world. In its World Economic Outlook, the IMF says the US economy is expected to grow 2.9% this year and 2.5% next year. The organisation had forecast in April that the US economy would grow 2.7% in 2019. If you have the world's two largest economies at odds, that's a situation which everyone is going to suffer, said Morris Obstifield, chief economist at the IMF. The IMF repeatedly singled out Trump's trade actions as disruptive to global growth and prosperity, especially the imposition of tariffs on roughly half of the goods the US imports from China. The IMF also reduced its growth forecast for China next year to 6.2% because of the trade war, down from 6.4% in April. The escalating trade wars could dent business and financial market sentiment, trigger financial market volatility and slow investment and trade, the IMF wrote in its report. Higher trade barriers would disrupt global supply chains and slow the spread of new technologies, ultimately lowering global productivity and welfare, the IMF said. More import restrictions would also make tradable consumer goods less affordable, harming low-income households disproportionately. And to Australia. And Moody's has warned that mortgage delinquencies and defaults are more likely to occur in outer suburbs of Australian cities than inner city areas because of lower average incomes and weaker credit characteristics in these suburbs. On average, across Australian cities, mortgage delinquency rates are lowest in areas within 5 kilometres of central business districts and they're highest in areas of 30 to 40 kilometres from central business districts. Average incomes are lower in outer suburbs than in inner city areas. These factors increase the likelihood of mortgage delinquencies and defaults in outer areas, particularly in the event of an economic downturn. And coal power would have to be eliminated or reduced to negligible levels and agriculture 
and to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and prevent the Great Barrier Reef from being almost totally destroyed, according to a landmark report. The special report by the International Panel on Climate Change lays out a stark challenge for the coal industry if the world is to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. The aspirational level the nations agreed to pursue in addition to their individual national targets in the Paris Climate Agreement. The key finding is that if we are to have any hope of stabilising global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, global emissions of carbon dioxide must reach net zero by 2050. This means not only eradicating fossil fuels like coal from global energy systems within decades, but that energy sector emissions would need to be balanced by removing carbon dioxide from the air through methods including reforestation and carbon capture and storage technologies that remain largely unproven. For his own part, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has gone all out to appear robustly blasé on the topic, telling the ABC's Insiders program that Australia's efforts to meet its Paris Agreement targets would be met in a canter. This is not what the government's own data says, however. And on Monday, Morrison went further or deeper backwards, promising not to spend money on climate conferences and all that nonsense. And Australia's Environment Minister, Melissa Price, said the IPCC economists were way out and inaccurate. And China's investment into Australia slumped 40% last year, twice the drop worldwide according to new figures which highlight the impact of Beijing's crackdown on trophy acquisitions and Canberra's tougher new stance on sensitive infrastructure and property. A new public database from the Australian National University, supported by Treasury and with input from the Reserve Bank of Australia, shows Chinese commercial investment peaked in 2016 at $14.9 billion, before falling to $8.9 billion last year. The research team painstakingly trawled through thousands of transactions to put together the full picture. It showed most of the money went towards mining and real estate. Mining accounted for a quarter of the total money received over the four-year period but it also showed a growing amount was being funnelled into service sectors, such as the health services industry. And ANZ has flagged an $824 million hit to its annual result due to customer compensation for services that either weren't provided or were inadequate, as well as other charges. ANZ said the estimated impact on its full-year profit after tax from continuing operations was $697 million dollars, with another $127 million for its wealth business sold to IOOF last year. Provisions will include $374 million related to customer compensation, $206 million for accelerated amortisation on software, $104 million for a restructuring of its technology team, and $27 million related to external legal costs stemming from the Banking Royal Commission. And private equity group, KKR is buying out MYOB to take on zero. MYOB, said KKR and co, proposed to buy shares it doesn't already own in the cloud services provider for about $1.75 billion after bagging a 17.6% stake in MYOB from Bain Capital Abacus Holdings. KKR paid about $327.4 million, or $3.15 per share, for the stake from Bain to build up its hold in MYOB to 19.9%. And its buyout offer for all the rest of the shares is $3.70 cash per share. And the Australian Tax Office is reportedly looking at Deloitte, Ernst Young, KPMG and PricewaterhouseCoopers for tax promoter schemes. 
The investigation stems from the Paradise Papers and 13.4 million leaked confidential documents from legal firm Appleby showing how major world players take advantage of offshore tax havens. The ATO has been looking at thousands of emails and documents that were part of the Paradise Papers as they relate to Australia. The Tax Office's Tax Avoidance Task Force has collected $5.6 billion over two years from its audits of global tech companies, miners and private wealth groups. Now the ATO's focus is on big accounting firms after the ATO allegedly found tax schemes to get around provisions of the multinational anti-avoidance law. And the Commonwealth Bank has confirmed it will refund customers who were charged fee for no service after coming under fire at the Banking Royal Commission early this year. CBA said in a statement it would pay back any unauthorised advice fees it charged to dead customers with interest in the past seven years. The bank has audited 142,000 accounts and so far identified 12 deceased estates being charged unauthorised fees between April and June 2018. So if they're going to refund fees they charge to dead customers, the question is, who are they going to pay? And Slater and Gordon has filed a class action lawsuit against Colonial First State and the Commonwealth Bank, alleging they ripped off hundreds of thousands of customers. The class action was filed in the federal court and kicks off the first of several the law firm is planning against bank-owned retail super funds, potentially affecting up to 5 million Australians. The class action alleges Colonial First State breached the trust of its members by investing their retirement savings with its owner, the Commonwealth Bank, who in turn offered a pitiful low cash rate. And following evidence in the Financial Services Royal Commission that dead people were charged for advice and some deceased were also billed for life insurance, Australian banks are making further changes to their recently rewritten code of practice to overhaul the way they manage a customer's estate when they've died and end the charging of fees for no service. Banks will change their banking code of practice to overhaul the way they manage a customer's estate when they've died and end fees for no service across the industry. Further to this, they will seek new legislation to end grandfathered payments and trail commissions for financial advisors. These reforms are the first of several changes in response to the Royal Commission. They include ending fees for no service, so banks will change the way they manage ongoing financial advice, proactively contacting customers to confirm what advice is required and only charging for what is provided, changing the banking code of practice to improve the way banks manage a deceased estate. Once notified of a customer's death, banks will proactively identify fees that are for products and services that can no longer be provided in the circumstances and they'll stop charging those fees and refund any paid. And they'll also seek new legislative changes to the future financial advice reforms to remove all legislative provisions that allow grandfathered payments and trial commissions in financial advice. And Telstra is bracing for revolt over executive pay as shareholders and proxy advisors question the wisdom of giving bonuses at a time when the telecommunications giant share price has crashed and it's showing 8,000 staff the door. Powerful proxy advisors, CGI Glass Lewis, ISS and Ownership Matters have all recommended voting against Telstra's remuneration report at the Telco's annual general meeting next Tuesday. And Cochlear is embarking on clinical trials of a fully implantable hearing device that it hopes will be the next big breakthrough in the world-leading technology that surgeon Graham Clark pioneered in Melbourne four decades ago. The fully implantable hearing device should enable patients to hear 24 hours a day whether they're sleeping, showering, swimming or even gardening in hot weather. A degree of functionality that current implants can't deliver. And that's it for this week. And next week we'll have a terrific interview with David Cook, the Managing Director of Konica Minolta.
and he's going to be talking to us all about Konica Minolta's human rights framework. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.